Well, today we're turning to Ephesians uh, 4, verse 7 to 16. Um, last week we looked at the first six verses and begun to think about unity within the church. Um, and today I want to continue with that idea as we study the next um, idea that Paul brings us um, of what increases unity within the church. So Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, and read with me if you can, please, uh, from verse uh, 7, Ephesians 4 and verse 7. For grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, wind, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, uh, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, again we come to you and as we have opened your word and read it, we ask now as we begin to uh, unpack what we have read, that you would make it very clear to us and the importance of unity in the church. Lord, we pray that we would see the gifts that you have given us through Christ. Lord, we would see the necessity of them and that way we walk in them so that in all things we may bring glory and honour to Christ that we may have an effective ministry so Lord we pray that you would help us speak to us by your spirit we ask in Jesus name Amen if you were to go on amazon.co.uk today and type in church growth tens upon thousands of results would appear mostly books written by men and women on their ideas of church growth. In these days, actually, there, uh, there's such a thing as a movement called the church growth movement. Men and women who write and run conferences and do many things to give advice on how to grow your church. And some of it helpful. Well, the idea of church growth I think when you think about it, it's multifaceted, isn't it? You could look at numerical church growth or spiritual church growth or how both those things affect one another. However, the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Ephesians is better than any book that man has written or any seminar 
that they would run. See here, Paul deals with a bigger issue of spiritual growth and explains how God grows the church through its living and walking out of unity, which is what we touched on last week. So taking what Paul says about, the, about church growth, I think we can break it into four sections, four aspects of spiritual church growth, all tied into its unity. I suppose these four things are the causes and effects of church growth and ultimately unity. And so I want to begin with the first point, and this is going to be our longest point today, and it's called the essentials. That's our first point, the essentials, verse 7 through 11. Right the way through this series, we have talked about how amazing it is that God takes all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, cultures, societies, communities, and by his grace, saves them from sin and adds them into a new race, into a new citizenship, which we looked at in weeks gone past. Last week we looked at how Paul implores us to live in unity as that unity is the thing that wonderfully glorifies God. And so it's very important. But now in verse 7, Paul uses the word grace again. But this time this grace has a different function. And please try and follow me uh, when I say this. We know much about his saving grace. But this grace is an enabling grace, an enabling grace. What Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus is that this grace is the means by which we are able, they are able to perform the tasks God has called them to do, called us to do. Not just unity, but all tasks in which he has already chosen and equipped us to do, as we read in chapter 2 and verse 10 those works that are prepared beforehand. But listen also to what Paul says in Romans 12 and 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And likewise in chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8 of Ephesians, Paul said, and you can look back a chapter here, that he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him by the working of God's power. See, we call it amazing grace. We actually sing it, don't we? Amazing grace. But when we understand that God gives it according, in accordance to the measure of Christ's gift, we know then that this means he gives to us the perfect amount of grace and faith to energize whatever gift he has given us. What I mean by that is this. We each have been given a gift, an ability from God. Some of you may struggle right now to pinpoint that gift in your life, but you have one because the Bible says you do. And Jesus has measured it out, almost like you can imagine him measuring it out perfectly to us individually, each with certain distinct capabilities and parameters and purposes. And it is imperative then that we use our own gift to minister in Christ's name. 
Peter said this in 1 Peter 4 and 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Well then, what right does Jesus have to impart such gifts to us? Well, look at verse 8 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 4. It says this, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended was the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that might that he might fill all things. See here Paul borrows uh, a line from actually Psalm 68 and verse 18. That's what you see in verse 8. And in Psalm 68 and 18, God is actually pictured as marching in triumph before all Israel after the Exodus. You see, historically, a king would have brought home the spoils and enemy prisoners and paraded them before his people as a mark of victory. And this is where the words, he ascended on high, leading captives and giving gifts to men. That's where this fits in. See, the picture that Paul is trying to draw is that of Christ ascending to heaven, leaving the battle on earth and returning into the glory of the heavenly city with the trophies of his great, great victory, which we know was the defeat of sin and death, fulfilling all the Father had sent him to do. And that's what speaks of then of the captives, you and me, who were made free and given gifts and power to use those gifts for his glory. An amazing picture, right? And Paul helps us in these, in verse 9 actually, um, then as a side note almost, saying that Jesus ascended back into heaven. And if he did that, then surely he descended also. And of course, the, the descension was Jesus' incarnation, leaving the benefits of heaven and descending not only to the earth to become a babe and to grow up and to die on a cross, but also to, to bear the world's sin on that cross. And now, as we said before, he is ascended into glory and fills all things. Talked a bit about that a few weeks ago. So from what we have just said, Christ owns every right then to impart gifts to us because he has bought us at the highest cost and has power, dominion, and authority over all things. Of course, he has the right to give us, those, give us those gifts. He has bought that right. But as we close out this first point then, which is our longest point, as I said already, so don't panic, we ask another question. What gifts does he give us? What, is, what gifts does he give to us? Let me answer that, that question quickly by saying he gives us many gifts, which we read throughout the New Testament. They're varied. Some people have different ones to, to others. But here, I think, specifically, we're probably better asking the question, what gifts does he give to the church as a whole? Look at verse 11. In verse 11, it says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, 
and teachers. So we've got apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And so let's look at these gifts quickly this morning. Firstly, let's talk about the gift of apostles and prophets. Paul indicates in chapter 2 and 3 of Ephesians that the apostles here are the 12 disciples and the prophets were those who preached according and in, in association with the apostles' teaching. I firmly believe that the apostles and prophets were given to the church to get her established. But now, today, 2020, their role is assumed by the writings of the New Testament. See, they were witnesses of Christ and they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the Holy Scriptures. And we now believe that we have in Scripture everything that is sufficient for us to live in God's perfect plan. All that we need to live life to, and to live it to glorify Christ. And nothing more needs added to it. So the apostles and prophets were unique. They were given their title because they were men who had seen the risen Christ, I think that, that makes an apostle an apostle. And Paul being the last of them actually on the road. They were given a specific and they were given for a specific time and for a specific purpose, but they didn't exist beyond the apostolic age. However, there are Christ given gifts which have continued and will continue through all earthly generations and namely evangelists, shepherd, uh, shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers. We know of Philip in Acts 21 and 8, and Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and 5, as two men who were called evangelists. From scripture we can understand that their role as evangelists were vital. They were extensive and far-reaching. Their role was to preach the good news. They were proclaimers of God's saving grace. These uh, weren't men with ten suits and ten sermons who ran around the country on a kind of road show. They were guys on the ground, missionaries and church planters who went to places where Jesus wasn't known and led people to Jesus, taught them all things, built them up, and move them and then move from that place into new territory and that's the biblical model and i really love that who in today's church in 2020 has the biblical model established this model does not remove the need for all members of the body to be evangelistic in their thinking and in their living but maybe we've missed and maybe we've been more uh, productive in producing evangelistic meetings and trying to get people through doors than in putting Christ gifted men on the ground. I'm more convinced maybe here today that raising up men for this messy, gritty, long-term, hard, prone to rejection job is maybe a better and more biblical way to spend our time. Maybe just some thoughts there from me. Well then, 
pastor teachers, shepherds teachers. I purposely read them like that and read them like that because they are one and the same role. The titles need not be separated with an and here like it does in, the, in this text. The New Testament talks of the role as being a shepherd over the flock of God, an overseer and one who teaches and cares for the church of God, which was obtained by the blood of Jesus. The role indicates someone with tenderness, um, caring and nurturing for the flock, maybe a touch here and a kind word there and a gentle prod at the right time. Yet it also suggests resolute strength and protection of the flock. A shepherd teacher, a pastor teacher, is to make feeding the sheep his top priority, which in turn means leading them to good pasture. And as I wrote this and as I say this today, I realise I preach to myself and I pray and have prayed that God will continue to shape and mould my shepherding into something that pleases him. However, I find great comfort and encouragement that by his grace, as we have already talked about, he has not only called me, but continually equips me for the task, as he does you for the task he has called you to. Okay, having talked much about the leadership of the church as essential to its growth, we now move on to point two, which is this, the means. Look at verse 12, the first half of verse 12. The means of the spiritual growth of the church is simply its discipleship. In verse 12, Paul says quite simply that God has gifted, uh, given gifted leadership to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There it is. It doesn't need a lot of explaining. And this is a watershed text, isn't it, for the doctrine of the church. And it also eliminates the traditional model, I think, of the local church as a pyramid. With the pastor perched precariously on the top of the pinnacle. While the lay people are arranged beneath him, lined up, if you like, in rows of inferiority. Or maybe the bus model, in which the pastor does all the driving, while the congregation are... The passengers in slumber and peaceful security behind him. This text gets rid of all of those ideas. The pastoral role is mainly to prepare God's people for works of ministry. However, the flip side then of this text and the role of leadership is shouting out to all of you who are simply spectators to the work of the church. And it's saying to you, get involved in some kind of ministry. Enough of sitting on the sidelines. You're up. Thirdly then, let's see uh, the goal. So third point is this, the goal. In the second half of verse 12 through 14. What results should we see if the pastor does their job and his flock are prepared for service? Well, in a word, maturity. Read uh, verse 12 to 14, second half of verse 12. 
to 14, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, we need to read those verses and we need to understand what God is trying to say to us about having these things in place, good leadership and an active church. I'm sure when you were a child, you would have experienced the feeling of being unable to decide on something. And then when you finally decided on something, you regretted your decision. Most of us have been to Morelli's in Port Stewart. You go in the door, see all the flavours, the ice creams laid out in front of you. And if you're anything like me, uh, no longer have you seen one flavour that you like, then you see another one that you like. And the queue is behind you and it's moving uh, you on, it's pressing you silently to place your order because everyone else wants to get their order in too. But you are divided in which flavour you want to choose. Then you get your ice cream. You go and sit down with whoever you're with and you look at their ice cream and then you look at yours and you look at theirs and you kind of wish you had what they had. You wish you'd chosen something different. This is the way of the immature believer. This is the way of a child, as it says here in these verses. Fickle, unstable, gullible, easily influenced. Today we could talk about influenced by latest book, preacher or fad, vulnerable to the wolves, of which there are plenty. But those who are mature are steady and focused. Paul describes here corporate maturity as possible for the church when we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Therefore, not only are we called to unity, but to get there, we must know Christ, grow in maturity, use our gift for God's service, and hold to sound teaching, sound doctrine. That's what Paul is calling the church to do. Isn't it wonderful that our working together results in mutual growth together, which then in turn results in unity? Can you see that? It's an amazing picture of the church and something we should all strive towards today. Fourthly then and finally, we want to see the medium, verse 15 and 16. This last point is stunningly beautiful because the medium, the vehicle to spiritual growth and unity together is literally here translated in the original truthing in love. Yes, I said truthing. T-R-U-T-H-I-N-G. Truthing. Our text renders it speaking the truth in love, but it really means truthing. This carries with it greater weight and responsibility for us all, because not only are we to speak the truth 
but we are to do the truth. True thing. I believe that when this is active, this truth speaking and doing, unity and general spiritual growth of the church is accelerated as the Spirit of God has freedom to move and do his work. But then what a depressing picture it is when, because of our lack of unity and truthing, we actually have the capability as men and women to decelerate the work of the Spirit and to stunt our own growth as a church. May this never be the case. However, if these things are in place, if we are establishing this truthing model, we all grow up into Christ who is the head of the church and in whom we all hold together as a body and through whom we are equipped and sent out to his work with his grace. Isn't that an incredible thing? There's a lot there today. I've shared a lot with you. I wanted to deal with this in one chunk because I think it all fits together. But I urge you to read it again after this stream is over. Pray over the word. Let God work it into us because if we get this, it changes everything. It changes everything for us. It changes everything for the effectiveness of the ministry of Christ through our church. So let's put these things into practice. Let's understand the truths what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. May that apply to us now. May we apply that to our lives now. And long when we get back together, that these things will be active and working between us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful uh, pictures that we see that Paul has painted for us. That we can achieve if we strive for unity. Thank you for the essential things that you have given us, the gifts that you have given us. Those men uh, that you have gifted that uh, look after and take care of the church and lead the church. Thank you for all the gifts that you have given to us individually. I pray that we would find them if we don't know what they are. Seek your face to uh, ask you what they are and, and to be willing to step up and use them in your work here. Father, we do pray that Everything we do would always be an accelerant to the work of the Holy Spirit. Not a decelerant, not something that will uh, decline the work of the Spirit in our church and the work in this place. May we not be a hindrance to that, we pray. So spur us on. Keep us focused. Let us hold on to the word. Let us be steadfast. Not childlike, but mature. And may you receive all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.